Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen concludes her conversation with psychologist and author Dr. Mary Pfeiffer about her career and her most recent book, A Life in Light, Meditations on Impermanence. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you from Chaddock for another episode. So, everyone, I am giddy with excitement about the person I am interviewing today. This is one of the greatest highlights of my podcasting endeavors being able to interview this person. So let me do some background and introduction on the amazing Mary Pfeiffer. Mary Pfeiffer was born in October 1947. She is an American clinical psychologist and author. No doubt just about everyone who listens to this podcast has heard of her. She has many books. Her most recent one that we're going to be highlighting today is called Life in Light, Meditations on Impermanence. But she's also written Women Rowing North, The Green Boat, Reviving Ourselves in Our Capsized Culture, the bestseller. She's actually a New York Times bestseller four times, but one of them is the book Reviving Ophelia. I have recommended that book to just about every mother of a daughter I have ever met. And I have followed Mary Pfeiffer's career since maybe college, possibly high school. I'd have to look like when her very first book was written, but it feels like a very long time. I want to share just a bit about her educational background. She has a Bachelor of Arts degree in anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley, and a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And she has received many awards for her work over the years. I particularly wanted to mention her educational background because her degree in anthropology, I think really makes her voice different than the typical clinical psychologist out there who might be writing books. She brings in a lot of things about the broader culture into what she writes about. And that's one of the reasons I find the book's she writes so unique and different and compelling. I have every book she has ever written. I have a special section in my bookshelf where all of them are. She owns a large portion of my bookshelf and she is going to be coming right up. I just can't wait to share this interview with all of you. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. In January, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock will launch the next session of the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, 
consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, to join the waitlist for more information or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. So I am here again with Dr. Mary Piper. Thank you for continuing this conversation with me. I'm happy to be here with you, Karen. Yes. So in our previous episode, we talked a lot about some of your previous books. I did want to ask before we get to your most recent book, is there anything you'd like to share about any of your previous writings that didn't come up in that conversation? I don't want anything left out that that is important oh, to you, you to say. No, I mean, the only thing I would say is, is I absolutely love being a writer. It's It's been a wonderful life for me. I think a lot, writing is a way of being twice, once in real time and one in reflected time. And as purely as a, as a mental health uh, issue, to me, writing has been wonderful because it allows me to organize a messy life and a messy brain into something uh, more shapely. Um, I very much believe in um, creating transcendent narratives uh, as, a, as a clinical tool, as a therapeutic tool. And one of the ways I've done that for myself is with writing. And it's, it's a beautiful life. So I encourage anybody who is interested in writing to do what I did, which is just read books on writing, take college courses, join a writer's group. I mean, I had always believed that I wasn't smart enough or sophisticated enough to be a writer and, and that it was some kind of special gift some people had that other people didn't. I, I don't believe that. I mean, I think you have to be reasonably bright. I think you have to be a reader to be able to be a good writer. But otherwise, it's it's that 10,000 hours. It takes 10,000 hours to be a good doctor. It takes 10,000 hours to be a great celloist, 10,000 hours to be a great therapist, and 10,000 hours of work to be a good writer. So mm. it's a question of wanting to be a writer that really determines, I think, whether or not you end up being a writer. Yes. Well, I myself and many, many others are so grateful that that's the direction that you ended up going because you've really enriched both my personal uh, life as well as my professional life. I just think of of things that you've said. I hear you. I hear your books in my mind at different moments. So so let's go to um, A Life in the Light. Let's share with listeners um, how this book came about. Uh, you discovered you had yet another book in you. I hadn't planned to write any more books after Women Were North. But then COVID came, and um, I was very lonely. I was struggling with depression. My daughter lives in Canada with my grandchildren, and the border closed. So we had a couple years we couldn't see that family. And we didn't see my son's family much because they were in a community where there was a lot of COVID. Um, And I also thought, well, first of all, I thought I need a project. Secondly, I thought... This struggle I'm having with resilience and finding the light and transcending a painful experience could be a useful struggle to explore for everyone else who's having the same kind of suffering and difficulty with 
the pandemic. And um, so I started writing. Uh, I'm, it's a themed memoir. It's a collection of stories about light and time. And I started writing it uh, by simply beginning at the beginning of my life and telling the first stories about light. I have my first memory of light is before I was verbal. I was lying um, on a little blanket on the ground when I was a baby, watching dapple light in the trees. And even though I have no language for that memory, I have an acute visual memory of what that, that light in the trees looked like. And I knew as a baby that it was fascinating. And I've stayed a very solar-powered person my whole life. I could not live in a basement. I couldn't work in a room without windows. Um, I, I really like light as much as possible. I have a prism that I depend on for light in the winter, interesting light. And if I'm walking down a street and there's some light coming through, say, a sprinkler system, I'll stop and watch it for a while. To me, it's just an extraordinary pleasure to have contact with light. So the stories are about that. They're also about impermanence because um, I like to think of, of life as sort of a kaleidoscope, you know, that you turn a kaleidoscope, you're in a new place. And, and then you turn it again, you're in a new place. And obviously at 75, I've been in a lot of places. And so it's really been... Um, it's really been interesting to look back through my life with the themes of light and time. Yes. And um, you talk about this, um, I believe, a Japanese word. Is oh, that... komarebi. Yeah. Komarebi. Yes. Could you talk about that a little bit? I found that so interesting. Yeah. Komarebi means exactly what my first memory was. The dapple light that comes through trees with trees born, so it's light shadow, light shadow. And of course, that's a beautiful, and, and then the definition also includes a feeling of loss or nostalgia for what has changed. And so dapple light actually symbolizes both light and shadow and time. It's all in there, in that one image of light coming through trees, light and shadow coming through trees. It's also a very good image for life itself because we all experience that constant fluctuation between joy and sorrow, joy and grief, joy and anger, um, contentment and discontentment. So it's a beautiful image to me, Komarebi. And almost all the chapters have aspects of Komarebi. Many of them have a sadness and then a, a flip or a transcendent response to that sadness that allows me to go on and be a happy, happy person, happier person than yes. I would be. Yes. And what about zeroing in? I know you said a bit about it, but the the other part of the title, Meditations on Impermanence. Is there anything else you would add specifically to that part? Well, I, I've... Of course, as I get older, I've thought about that a lot, but I've actually thought about it my whole life. I've been acutely aware of the passage of time. Well, here's here's an example of something I learned writing that book. Uh, I mentioned I was a very attachment-seeking. Yes. And I learned that the great challenge for me developmentally across life stages 
has been connecting with people, keeping a, a beautiful circle of people in my life, keeping connected to the family members I want to be connected to. But that that the challenge of the last decades of life is detachment, is learning to deal with loss, learning to accept the fact that as one ages, there are fewer people in your life, not more people in your life. And um, I think it's, it's, it's good to be aware that that is the challenge because then the issue becomes facing that challenge um, mm-hmm. and accepting, accepting reality, ending an argument with reality, ending a grasping and a clinging to what isn't uh, present. An interesting thing just happens to be happening now, which is uh, we, we bought a new carpet for our whole first floor. And when we moved into this house 18 years ago, the seller said, you need a new carpet right away. This carpet is really worn out. Well, 18 years later, we a new carpet. It was really worn out. <laughs> anyway, that involves moving all of our furniture uh, and every bookcase unpacked and so on. So when it came time to put things back, I realized this house is designed for a life I no longer have. You know, there's children's toys under the fireplace. There's a a children's bedroom with a baby bed and stuffed animals. That isn't my life anymore. That has nothing to do with my life. And so I'm rearranging it, not in keeping with my life up till now, but in anticipating the life I'll have in the future. So, for example, I have a room that is my history books and my poetry books and a rocking chair and a table. So I can go in and have it be a reading room where I drink a cup of tea and pull out volumes of poetry whenever I feel like it. And my study area is still a study area. I can become a writer tomorrow if I choose to be. But it's also become, I'm a Buddhist. It's become somewhat of a Buddhist meditation room. And I've really enjoyed this flipping from here's a house designed for someone other than me to here's a house designed for me. It's been a process of letting go. And it's also been a process of anticipating with joy. Yes. I love that. Well, and you know, with attachment, you know, I've, I've been thinking about, um, you know, as you said, obviously the, the podcast is about attachment theory and application but when one reads your book, you had some pretty difficult experiences related to attachment in early childhood. Um, could you talk about some of that? Yes, absolutely. And I think those difficult experiences very much relate to my living a very deeply connected life as an adult, because that's what I find satisfying is, is being embedded in beautiful communities of people and having lots of women friends and lots of rituals around annual campouts and, you know, people getting together regularly for meals. And that's all just beautiful stuff to me. Yeah. As a kid, um, I was born right after the war, early baby boomer. And my parents uh, lived for a year in the Ozarks and then moved to Denver. Uh, So I missed, I had a year of my grandmother and my aunts and so on in the Ozarks, then moved as a baby with my parents to Denver. 
But very shortly after we moved to Denver, my father uh, rejoined. Both my folks had been in the military in World War II. He rejoined the army, went to the Korean War so that my mother could afford to go to medical school. They didn't have any money unless he had a way to make money so she could go. So I lost my father then. He was gone four years, came home a few times because I had two more brothers during that time. Mm -hmm. But uh, I lost my father. Then when he did finally come home, we didn't really know him. Uh, He wasn't ready to be a father. He'd had a long time away. He wasn't really part of our lives. But he decided to take one of my brothers and me to the Ozarks to live a year. And I had a year without my mother when I was six. And um, I've read a lot of the research on what that does to children. But what it did to me was make me much more anxious than I think I would have been otherwise uh, that early loss of attachment to parents. And I also think it made me just crave um, the attention of my parents and my aunts and my grandmothers so that I became a very good girl. I became someone who really worked hard at connecting with these loving women in my family. And I just barnacled to my mother, barnacled myself to my mother when she was around. In fact, I just gave a little speech at a library in a town called Crete. And I gave this speech for sentimental reasons. I don't normally talk or give little speeches or anything anymore. But but this was the town my mother uh, made rounds at this little hospital when we lived in Dorchester, Nebraska. And I, I thought about this this time when I'd ride along with my mother on rounds and sit in the waiting room while she was in the hospital, just so that I could be with her in the car as she came and went. And this beautiful thing happened when I was down at this new library in Crete, which is the librarian told me this hospital is now the site of the library. They tore down that hospital and turned it into a library. So I accidentally had stumbled onto the spot I'd been with my mother 50 years ago. Oh, is this an amazing serendipitous event? That's incredible. It, it was so deep in me that I wanted to go down to that town where the hospital had been. And I actually ended up on top of the hospital. I know it was a beautiful thing. I may write an essay about that. Yes. Yes. And, you know, some of these separations to me and, and somebody who thinks about early separations and attachment all the time, they, they seem so huge and abrupt. I would like, wait a minute, what did she just say happened? I know. I mean, it was, it was so surprising to me that I would have to like reread it to make like, just like what you said. And so then I was separated from my mother for a year and I was like, wait, what, what did she do? You've been so, you've been so resilient. Well, you know, I think my parents probably weren't getting along. And the 50s wasn't a time people divorced. So they, they separated geographically as a way to, to sort of keep that relationship alive. And they actually never lived together much the rest of my life. My dad would work in different towns and be home on weekends. And they, they never really were together very much. And when they were, they fought. Um, so I think that is part of it. My mother, I think now, was probably um, on the autism uh, spectrum. And that's one of the reasons separation wasn't so hard for her is she she didn't really 
necessarily have all the attachment equipment that most people have. And mm-hmm. so she could make decisions about children in a way that, that most parents could not, you know. Yes, and you you bring that up even later in the book with your own baby and her idea what when you had your baby but were still working on your degree, she yeah. had that the idea that your baby would just go with somebody, right? Well, I was at that point I was anticipating medical school. And yes. I had a little son, I was not married. And she suggested that she keep my son while I go to medical school, which is actually was for me a very big, uh, very big push toward dropping out of medical school because I would never want to be separated from a child, even for a day, you know. So I, at that point, I, I, uh, I did drop out of medical school. I didn't want to repeat the busy life my mother had where the family came second. My mother was, by the way, a very good mother, a very loving mother. She just went around. I mean, she just went around, and she um, she always favored work in her decision-making process. So, But anyway, I was extremely lucky I dropped out of medical school uh, almost before I started because it eventually led me to psychology, which I'm so much more suited to. I'm honestly not sure I could have given a shot to someone. I'm not sure I have those that skill set that involves blood <laughs> and all the things doctors have to do. Yes, yes. Well, and so there were also some themes of just loneliness and neglect, but wow, at the same time, you're bringing in how light and water, I don't want to forget water, how water. light and water allowed you or enabled you to cope with some of these things. And this is such beautiful essays about this. Well, one of the things I believed as a therapist is nobody benefits from the story that they are a victim. Nobody benefits from that story. It's not a good story. Uh, And so when I saw people who came in um, with stories that they'd been neglected, abused, uh, et cetera, I would, of course, listen respectfully to their stories. I would would uh, try very hard to understand their experience of their own lives. But at some point, I would move them into a different narrative. And I do it by saying things like, well, when you look back on your childhood and all the difficulties you faced, what are the things you were proud of? You know, what what can you feel that uh, that you did right that allowed you to become the very pleasant, resilient adult I know you to be? And that would start pulling for a very different story. And then we could expand that story. Well, in a sense, that's what I did with this book. Yes. I, I would write honestly about things that had happened to me, but then I would also write about the fact that I think there's one story, I wrote this book a couple years ago, but I think there's one story in the book where I saw my parents in a terrible fight and my dad threw a skillet. That could oh, yes, that's in there. I just reread it. And of course, that, and then after that happened, neither one of my parents said a word to me. My mother just went in and went to bed. And my dad left the house. And so I'm left thinking about this awful experience by myself. But the next day I got up and I went swimming and I just 
savored the light, savored my friends, savored that cool blue water. And I was aware, even as a child, that there were so many ways I could comfort myself, calm down, feel joy. Primarily, they had to do with reading. They had to do with the natural world, which I was deep. I still am deeply engaged with the natural world. And they had to do with water, swimming, uh, enjoying water. And they had to do with friends. And so when I'm writing about my childhood, which can seem like a rather sad, lonely childhood, I, I was constantly reminding myself, but wait a minute, you found all these people to love you. Yes. You had wonderful times out of doors. You read so many books. You ended up having so many girlfriends and these really loving, rich relationships with grandma mm-hmm. and aunts. And I just love this aspect of the book because I think sometimes we're not focused enough on transcending uh, as you say that narrative and and that's not it is not toxic positivity it's definitely not that like you're you're being so honest about painful hard things and at the same time thing experiences that allowed you to transcend those things and it's just such a beautiful book and so inspiring i love it i think we need more of this in our profession i'm a little concerned that it's not present enough well even i i went to um i don't know if you've ever done this karen but there's a giant conference every year in anaheim called evolution of psychotherapy And I was a speaker one time and I was very, very humbled because I was on a panel with, um, uh, is it Peter Levine, the trauma? Yes. Peter Levine and uh, Donald Meikenbaum. And they were talking about all their research on trauma. And then I was just really talking as what I am, an ordinary clinician who'd seen clients. But I made a point that neither one of them made, which was, Again, similar to the story I just told you about uh, my writing and and how I approach clients with sad lives. But even with the worst trauma victims, um, and for example, refugees who'd come through terrible times and so on, I'd always ask people uh, what they did they were proud of. So I remember a a case where um, a woman I saw, uh, a nurse, had been raped in a parking lot as she left work. Terribly traumatic. She'd been badly injured. And she came in for trauma work and we worked for some time because she was obviously extremely traumatized. It affected her relationship with her husband and family and so on. Affected her work. But eventually we got to the topic of looking back on that. What could she be proud of? And as she started to talk about that, she, she really started to be again, a more powerful, healthy person, because she started to define herself, not just as the victim of a traumatic attack, but as someone who in the midst of that was so little control of what was going on, the small amount of control she had, she made good decisions. And, and, and that gave her a sort of feeling of, even in the worst of situations, if I have a little control, I'll do the right thing. I'll make a good decision. I'll take care of myself. You know, that's really what Viktor Frankl was talking about 
when he wrote about the concentration camps, is that even in the worst situation, there's a small iota of control. And with intention and attitude, we, we can exert that control and, and feel good about our own role in any situation. And to me, that is such a key to feeling like a healthy, stable person, is that awareness that we have power in every situation, if nothing else in our attitude, how we deal with it. Yes, you, you um, some of my favorite things just to wind down here, I guess. I know we're almost out of time, but you talk about learning to generate light inside of self and with effort and choice, we can always find light. And I feel like you know those two statements kind of summarize a bit of what you were just speaking to. Um, yes, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful book. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. It was a fun book to write. And um, it was a fun book to write. And I learned some things from it. There's a beautiful story, a Buddhist story in that book, where the Buddha and his followers are approached by a man who has lost his cattle. And he's he's very upset and he's going, have you seen my cows? Have you seen my cows? And um, the Buddha and his followers say, sadly, no, we haven't seen your cows. And he runs off and he's tearing his hair and he's going, I am ruined, I am ruined. And the Buddha looks at his followers and says, aren't you grateful you have no cows? And that to me was a very powerful story because what it taught me at this life stage, of course, I have plenty of cows. I have my friends, my children, my grandchildren, my husband, etc. But what it taught me is that ability to find the light within oneself is critical. It's a critical skill because you never know when you're going to lose your cows. Um, and, and we all lose cows all through our lives. And so that, that ability to, to let go and to move on, to allow the kaleidoscope to turn and be in a new place and be happy in that new place is, is so important. Mm, yeah, what a lovely way for us to end. Gosh, such important thoughts there. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. You have this wonderful way, I'm sure I'm not the first to say this, of making ordinary, extraordinary um, in this way that awakens us to noticing what's right here <laughs> that I just love so much. And um, it's been an honor to be able to speak with you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. I really enjoyed this interview. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.